Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to come together once more time. Uh, thank you for the blessing of our meal and our day, and we just ask your blessing on Wildwood. 75 years, we pray that you would continue to bless the ministry here. May it continue to increase. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So uh, we've been doing in this session leadership in ministry, and earlier this morning we talked about the personal aspect of leadership and things that leaders need to know about themselves, that self-knowledge is one of the greatest foundations for leaders. And then we started talking about boards, and I said this afternoon we we're going to talk about change. So we are going to talk about change, but before we do it, I just wanted to go back to the conversation on boards momentarily. This diagram looks like a diamond or a gem of some kind, and there's an organization that uses the acronym GEM as a way to think about board governance. Um, I think their website is Strive. I'm not really, I don't remember exactly. So, but there are different aspects, just like on the GEM has different facets of it. And all of these relate back to key areas of board governance. So for example, we talked about earlier, it's the key part of the board to direct the organization. That is, it's a key part of the board to uh, lay out the vision and the mission of the board and clarify the values. So there's directing there, but then also the board wants to protect the assets of the board the assets of the organization, the name of the organization in terms of its credibility. So directing and protecting, giving guidance and then putting things in place that direct. This would be underneath like organizational performance. We talked also about how it's the job of the board to select the right leadership. That's a very key task of a good functioning board. Then there are expectations how does the board want to relate to the management? And as we talked about earlier, if we have a governance model of a board working, then it would be inappropriate for a particular board member to jump over the president and begin to meddle or demand from his staff. So there are expectations, expectations both on how the board's gonna to relate to the management, and then again, expectations on how the board is gonna to relate to itself how the board's going to evaluate itself, uh, what would be some of the responsibilities there. So direct, protect, uh, select, expect, and then another function of board is the board connecting with other entities. How does the board connect both internally, how do the board members connect with one another, but how does the board itself connect with other organizations? For example, at OCI, it's part of our strategic plan that the board has directed the administration to make intentional connections with other significant organizations like ASI and ESA, EA Sutherland Educational Authority Division Presidents. That's part of our strategic plan that we would intentionally connect with these other entities. Um, there was something here, reflect. The last two, reflect. That is the thinking of are we attaining the results that we want? What are the organizational results? Have we made clear what we would like to see for the board? 
for the administration rather to accomplish. This really is, again, one of those areas where, from my view of sitting on a lot of boards, supporting ministries are weak, where they don't do very well in saying, this is what we'd like to see next year, and then coming back and getting reporting and reflecting on what has been accomplished. Uh, it, it takes a lot of change. I'm happy to say that the OCI board is moving in that direction lately, that um, there's a lot of engagement in our strategic plan by the board members. Uh, let me give you an example. Over the past X number of years, OCI actually, in addition to donations that came to OCI for other ministries, which is the predominant way it comes, OCI itself gave away around $4 million to different ministries at different times. That resulted in a situation where OCI was in a very weak financial position. We really, uh, at one point, we had about $100,000 left in the bank, and that was it. And so it was, you know, created a little bit of crisis, at least from my point of view. And, you know, I brought this to the board. I said, this is where we are. And we laid out this plan to try to make OCI self-sustaining, self-supporting. Oh, that's a novel idea, right? Be self-supporting. And so we came up with the idea of buying apartments and having these apartments and then renting them out and creating income from it. And so it's been a process, and the process is continuing. We're about... I think at the end of this year, we'll about, we will be about half to three-quarters of the way to funding our entire budget through our rental properties. So we're making progress. And in this time, we have kind of put a moratorium on giving money away. And what's really encouraging to me is when somebody comes and they ask for money and I want to give it to them, I go to my executive committee, we go to the board, and the board's like, no, we're not doing that, remember? This is what we're doing. They've been very focused. Now, we don't do this entirely. We have just contributed $100,000 to buy a property in Israel to start a new ministry. So um, it's not an entire don't do anything, but it's very, very selective, very selective. And so you know, we're reflecting on what the organizational results are. And the board members, I really appreciate, are holding me accountable. Where are we? How are we doing? How's this moving? This is really good. And then the last part here on this diagram is respecting owner expectations. Well, what does that mean? If you have a for-profit organization, an organization that's lifted on the stock exchange, um, who are the owners of that organization? Shareholders are the owners of that organization. They're the ones that you need to respect their expectations. And the way you would do their expectations would be in creating value for them. In a ministry, it's different. So, you know, we might have to think through who would be the owners, like, for example, OCI, who would be the owners of OCI? Well, we could say maybe the members, the member ministries. Those are the ones we're really serving. So that would certainly be, in my mind, a large category of the owners of the organization. And we would need to be thinking, are we respecting their expectations? Um, you know, people were serving in a nonprofit. The owners, in concept, is usually those individuals that you're serving. So, um, okay. So this is just another 
way of pulling together seven key components of board, board governance, directing the organization, protecting the organization's interests, selecting the right leadership, expecting, holding expectations out for board and management interaction, connecting with other important organizations, reflecting on the organizational results, and thinking about the ownership, the owners, respecting the owners. Yes, sir. So like the example that we have here, the board itself doesn't elect leadership. Right. Constituent does. And the interesting part of the way things have worked up to this point, the board doesn't direct the vision either. It's directed by the leader with his team which gets presented to the board and they approve it. Right. Which is kind of the wrong way around. I would agree with that last statement, that it's kind of the wrong way. So at, here at Wildwood, you have the constituency, and we talked about the constituency model earlier. That's one of two models. The church has a constituent model. Um, a lot of newer supporting ministries don't have a constituent model. There's not a divine way of running a board. I think there are two different models. If you have a constituency, you really want to make sure the constituency is informed, uh, understands what their role is, and is engaged and manageable. So, you know, at the conference level, when we can have a constituency meeting next spring at, at Georgia Cumberland Conference, you know, people come from all over the conference. It's a big group of people. And yet, uh, hopefully, they're all informed as to their responsibilities. So that's one model. In relation to the vision, it's true. Lately, or recently in Wildwood's history, it's been more the administration. Hey, this is where we are. And the board's kind of like, oh, okay, we'll take that. I would argue that the board, I would suggest, that the board could be more engaged in that process. Um, and of course, that's a whole transition, which hopefully we'll get to talk about change momentarily. So, good point. Uh, one other thing I just, want to also bring out here, in all of this, it's important for us to realize that the board speaks with one voice. Um, I don't know how many times you might have heard the board, somebody on the board saying, well, the board decided, or the board feels. Well, the only way the board decides anything is by a vote. Now, board members may feel a lot, and certain board members may be very vocal, and they may express a lot, but if somebody says, like I was at this particular organization, this is fairly recently, we were on this board, we're having a problem working with some of the staff, and somebody made this comment, you know, this board is so micromanaging, which was really interesting for just five minutes before they said we were so aloof and we're so not interested. So we're on these two sides. But when they said that, you're so micromanaging, I asked the question, can you show me what votes we made that were micromanaging? And everybody was like, well, there aren't any. Okay, well then we're not micromanaging because this is the way the board communicates through a vote. And that's important for us. It's important for organizations to realize that's the will of the board, only when the board votes. So again, if I were to come to Vaughn and say, look, I talked to other board members and we want this, he'd be perfectly right to say, well, get it passed. You know, let me see. And that's the way we should understand that the board speaks with one voice, and that is through its agenda, uh, that through its voted aspects. How important is board confidentiality? Well, certain things are very public. 
example, if you are a 501c3, your 990 is public. Someone could get online. In fact, you'll find this story interesting. There's a, uh, an organization that I'm working with that's having turmoil on it. And part of the turmoil is being stirred by people in the community. And um, one of these people in the community is saying that I shouldn't be on the board because all OCI wants to do is close institutions down and sell them and take the money. So that's the story. And so since I'm on the board and I'm the president of OCI, they feel like it's a conflict of interest. And so they started digging around. And they found a 990 of another organization that has a pre two previous OCI board presidents on it and some wealthy individuals. And that organization has a lot of money. And this guy dug up their 990, brought it to the administration of this organization that we're having struggle with, and saying, see, these OCI guys, they're all over the place because of these two former presidents on this board. And then they brought it to me, like, look, here's the evidence. You guys got millions of dollars. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, that's not our organization. It's a totally different organization. Secondly, those two guys that are on it haven't been president for well over a decade and a half. Um, so certain things are public knowledge. Your 990 is public knowledge. Your tax stuff are public knowledge. But your conversations and your discussions really should be private unless it's open material, unless everybody's comfortable sharing them. And that's one of the great downfalls as well, is when what should be confidential gets spread out. So really, they should be private unless authorized to share. There's nothing more undermining than you have a tough board meeting, people make a vote, and the vote passes. And then other people are like, yeah, well, I really didn't like that. That just pulls away at the vote. Well, this person voted for it, but I didn't vote for it. Like, oh, really? That's confidential. Let's leave all that in the church board meeting, in wherever it is. Let's not make any of that public unless we have um, freedom to do so. So um, when do we decide that a majority is not sufficient and you need supermajority? Well, you want to make sure you're, you're carrying this with a good a good, good question uh, about voting and supermajorities. Can you hold that? Right, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Um, this confidentiality really should be part of a board education. That the board recognizes that this is a safe environment to communicate with one another. So what do we do about a board member who disagrees? Well, when we said, I'm sorry. Just family thoughts. You know, if a husband and wife get manipulated mm -hmm. by the children, and one parent says, well, I didn't really agree with that, but we have to do it because your father said so. Yes, good, good illustration, tying it back to the family. If the children can separate the parents, like what your dad says, or you know, your mom says, yeah, that's, that's not a healthy family, or it could create tension within the family. So how do we deal with a board member who disagrees? So disagreement is a good thing. We talked about that earlier. The leadership in the organization needs to create an atmosphere in which there is healthy conflict, in which people have the comfortableness, the, the atmosphere is such, the freedom is such, where we can disagree on issues. Disagree on issues. Don't attack individuals. But once the board makes a vote, that's the voice of the board. 
And in a board meeting, you can say, oh, I don't like this. But once the board votes, that's the board's vote. And to go around and publicly share disagreements is not an appropriate action for a board member. So much so that if somebody does that, if somebody is in a board and then they're going around and they're sharing their criticism of the board, I'd recommend that they, the, the chairman, chairperson, have a conversation with that board member and remind them of their obligations to the board and encourage them, please don't do that. And to the point where if they continue to do that, bring it to the board, like this is a very difficult situation. This is inappropriate for how we want to operate. Remember we talked earlier, one of the things a board does is sets out its playing rules, its, its policies that would help the way it wants to govern. And this would be a certainly an important part of that. So to, to labor with the board member, remind him or her, maybe encourage them to resign or, or terminate them. Um, but again, it's important that this be part of the board education. Different people will have different expectations of what's expected for them in the board. Yes? So you would need that in your board policy. Your board policy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just state it in there. And so in your board policies, so again, so you could have policies for the president. These are presidential limitation policies. But then you can have policies for how the board's going to act. And in there, the board talks about it. Yeah, we like this. No, we don't like this. The board votes on those. The board votes on those. And if they've made that statement, then this is the way we've agreed to play the game, you could say. Okay. Uh, what information should a new board member receive? These are just some questions people have given me. And almost finished with this, and then we'll move to change. And so, you know, they need information on the mission of the organization, how the finances are handled in the organization, any job descriptions for them or for the appropriate staff. Uh, you know, we give new board members all our bylaws, all our policy documents, our office policy documents, plus uh, our board policy documents, the policy documents that relate to field vice presidents. One area that's, that's really an area of discussion is, particularly for nonprofits, is that every board member should be a donor of record. That is, every board member should contribute to that organization. It helps with your fundraising. Okay? All of our board members are donors of record. In other words, they have made a financial contribution to, to be a board member. It doesn't have to be large, particularly in our work. It's not going to be large, but it is something. And you know, to ask every board member, you know, please fill out whatever you can do for us. Well, let's talk about ways of voting. We raised, someone raised that question earlier. How should voting be held? This certainly should be clarified in your bylaws, okay? There are certain things here that um, should, should really be made clear. So first of all, there's a simple majority. And for most things, in the, that would come up to a board, a simple majority is it. Really, just majority rules. For certain items, you want a supermajority. Well, what would be certain things where you would, might want a supermajority? Well, let's say you wanted to remove a board member, and you had in your bylaws that a you know, board member could be removed by 
two-thirds vote of those present. There are certain cases where a supermajority is necessary. You'd want to think those through and then put them in your bylaws. Some boards like to operate on a consensus basis. So what's a consensus basis? Or that be? Is everybody happy? Hmm. Okay. Well, one person's not happy. In certain circumstances, you can go by consensus. But if you make consensus the rule, you can run into this problem. Almost everybody agrees except maybe one person that doesn't or two people that don't. They are like, no, hey, we've got to do this by consensus and we're not agreed. Now this one or two people are holding everything up which really the majority very clearly want. So consensus, I'm not such a big fan of voting by consensus. Again, if everything's friendly and, and you're just doing it as a means of expediting things, that's fine. Clearly, simple majority is usually the most typical way of, of making the votes. Open versus secret ballots. Um, <clears throat> open versus secret ballots. There are times when you should have a closed ballot. So there may be sensitive issues where people might be intimidated by other people. And so having secret ballots is helpful there. Maybe you're voting on somebody's position. Maybe there's been a long conversation about somebody and now it's time to vote. Secret ballots are a way of relieving that pressure and that stress. And um, some people feel that this is a violation of Matthew 18. Because we're like, well, you know, I should go to my brother. I don't think so. You're in a totally different realm. You're in a church, you're in a board, you're making a decision, and you're making it easy for people to make that decision. We're not talking about a person's in membership, we're not talking about their salvation. We're talking about issues in a board. What we usually do is if anybody requests a secret ballot, then that's what we'll do. You know, somebody says, look, or let's do a secret ballot for all of these so it doesn't become an issue for anybody else. Of course, all the decisions need to be um, appropriately um, counted for. So, you know, supermajority, again, you're going to want for amending your bylaws, maybe removing your CO. One of the most impressive secret ballots was the one on women's ordination at the General Conference. Yes, right? Right. It wasn't impressive how they had it all organized, and actually they figured it out pretty quickly because they were supposed to use a different yeah. mechanism. Some people were uncomfortable because there was still so little visual seeing there, but I would agree with you. By and large, it was an excellent way to um, go things go forward. You know, back on the simple majority, um, you know, if somebody abstains, let's say you have eight people in a room and four vote yes and three vote no and one person abstains, it passes, right? Just because the abstain doesn't count as a vote, it's a simple majority. It's, it's passed. Or on the other side, if it's three yes, four no, you know, abstention in, uh, is a vote for the majority in those kind of cases. One issue comes up a lot is should the chair vote? The, the chairman, the chairperson does have the right to vote. Typically, the chair refuses to use that right unless there's a tie. But they are still a member of the board. They have the right to vote. 
whether they use it or not is often at their discretion, and most chairs will not vote unless it's a tie. But it's important, again, to make that clear in your policies or in your bylaws so there's no confusion, because some organizations are like, no, the chair is never supposed to vote. It's like, no, the chair is a member of the board and does have voting privileges. And so why would they vote? Oftentimes, chair just do it out of deference, because the chair usually is there to help guide the conversation. And so many chairs, many individuals who chair boards feel, well, I'm just going to take another step back. And if there's a tie, I'll make the decision. But it's really a choice for them. They can cut off, Sorry. They can cut off conversation because they say, well, the chairperson's in favor. If there's no point in voting. Yeah, it, it could do that. Now, there have been times when I have, as a chair, looked around a room and exercised my right to vote and then made it tie. So as I sat there and I looked around, I thought, oh, I think, you know, I didn't mentally calculate where everybody's going to vote. And then I said, I think I'm going to vote here. And then it became a tie. And then since I already voted, we had to figure out another way to get around that. <laughs> you know, um, and we had more conversation. But some, some chairs vote all the time. Others, most do not. Something else, and we talked about this earlier. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. So in a, in a tie situation, I'm, I'm comfortable moving ahead when there's that close of a, a feeling about an issue. It depends how important the issue is actually, right. right? And so my posture would be come back to it at another meeting. That's my general posture. Yes, if you have a strong, if you have an issue that's firmly tied, well, let's give ourselves time to think about this. Let's revisit it. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned just a moment ago that there was a time where I voted in favor of a thing I wanted to pass. There's also been times where, as the, the chair of my church board, I have voted against something I wanted because I felt there was a strong enough opposition to it. And I knew if I voted for it, it probably would pass. But that would have made more uncomfortableness, so I voted against it, even though I wanted it. Are you saying that in these cases that they can see you raise your hand, or were these secret ballots? No, these were open ballots. Oh. Yeah, just there you all raised your hand. Yeah. Uh, one of them, the first one was actually a secret ballot. The second one was open ballot. Okay, evaluation of the president. I think we talked a little bit about this earlier as well. It's very important to do this. Um, how do we evaluate the president? Well, first of all, we have to have clear guidelines with which we're evaluating the president against. So it's it's not good enough to simply say, well, I don't think you're doing your job. There has to be something measurable that the president, administrator, whoever he or she might be, is measured against. Well, in what way am I not doing my job? Sometimes a small committee will evaluate the president. Uh, sometimes a small committee will meet with staff or meet with other uh, interested parties and try to find out how the president's doing. Um, but if the organization has set out certain goals, it can kind of be clear, well, how's the president doing in relation to this? Uh, one thing's important is that both the board and the president should agree on the process of evaluation and the timing of evaluation. So what we did at OCI several years ago is we created a survey monkey um, thing and sent it out to all the board members and asked them to evaluate me. 
and it, you know it was done anonymously, and there's all this feedback, and it was a very good a good experience. Actually, it was a good experience for all the other board members because they're all leaders of their organizations, and it was like, hey, this really isn't a bad thing. Oftentimes, presidents don't want to get evaluated because they want to be insulated from criticism, which is unfortunate for leaders. Um, so again, an evaluation would be against specific metrics. You'd maybe want to interview staff. I find it very uncomfortable when the president is evaluated only in the middle of a board meeting, and then they're let go of that same board meeting without any previous feedback. I've seen that happen many times, where to me it seems like if there's really that much of an issue, somebody should be saying something to the president. And that if there's that much of an issue, that some kind of committee should be put in place. Let's work with him and, and give him or her you know, a length of time to see if they're going to respond or change and, and then move forward. Very unfair, I would say, just to come into a board meeting, hey, you know, Steve, you're not doing a good job, you're out of here. And it's like, whoa, like, where did that come from? Um, very inappropriate and happens way too much in our work, not just our work. Okay, any questions on that? Yes? Yep. All right, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about leading change. Um, change is essential for organizations. Change is essential for organisms. If you don't change, you die. Okay? So change is really important. And a lot of literature in leadership talks about managing change. There's one book which we'll talk about in a moment which is called Leading Change. And I think that's what leaders need to do. They need to be focused on how can they move change forward? How could they get ahead of the change and encourage it in their organizations? You probably have seen something um, like this graph. Well, let me redo that, sorry. If we kind of think of a life cycle of an individual or an organization, obviously the organization or the person is born, so that's the very beginning, and then, you know, they grow very quickly. There's infancy, and then there's, you know, adolescence, and, you know, then there's youth, and then the organization matures, and after they mature for a while, they begin to get older. I'm like, could you imagine if you even got to the age of 70 or something? And then, you know, they eventually go down like this until they die, right? That's unless the Lord comes and um, stops that from happening. This happens in churches and in businesses and in organizations as well, that they have a youthful point, there's a lot of enthusiasm, the founding stage, there's all this energy, there's all this learning, there's a little bit of chaos here and there with it, and you know, then it grows, and, it, and there's a lot of growth happening in here, and then it becomes mature, and then the question is, what will happen? Does it plateau? Does it become bureaucratic? Does it become autocratic? And then eventually just decline. Now, the one thing that can break this is if 
An organization can initiate change and start another cycle. And this is very important in organizations, that they think through where are they and how can they restart this growth trajectory. Very important for organizations. So you might ask yourself the question, wow, where are we? I mean, where's Wildwood? Well, Wildwood, where is Wildwood? Certainly, at least in the mature stage, right? In 75 years. I personally have seen it, it come to the plateau, uh, and there was a transition from Elder Fazee to uh, Brother Wilson. Mm -hmm. And it, you have to say it, it was a new cycle. Yeah. And, uh, and from Elder Wilson to uh, Wilbur, and you know. So Wildwood has had rejuvenations, let's say, throughout the years. But it's important that these rejuvenations continue. Because if they don't continue, then the organization um, becomes like a fossil. What's that word? Ancient, no, there's a word that when, an or when something becomes like a fossil. Uh, what? Petrifies. Yeah, like petrifies. OK, I'll take petrifies. So, Madison is an example of this. OK, so Madison. But it, it plateaued, and then they could not make that transition to a new cycle. Okay, that's really good. So Madison, you know, very energetic, and, and probably they had a couple of plateaus and then made, but their last plateau, they weren't able to get out of that. The organization just became very uh, entrenched in itself, and so that's important. And this can happen in a church. The church that I work with Eastridge, you know, it's a new congregation, been in existence seven years or something. We just started another church plant a year ago. They're going to become a company pretty soon. But literature in church planting studies have shown you know, that once a church goes past 10, 15 years, it's in danger of becoming stagnant. And so you have to have this continual renewal and, and revitalization. That takes change. The problem is when you're like on a plateaued area where you're in this mature stage, oh, it becomes hard to change because that's not the way we've always done it. You know, there's change. Change is a great thing. We should learn to embrace it. However, change always is upsetting. Okay? Some of the reasons people are concerned about change is because there's a fear of loss. What's going to be different? What am I not going to have that I do have now? What's going to be different? I like things the way they are. Things are very familiar. Things are very familiar. I like things the way they are. My fear of loss and my appreciation, my appreciation for the familiar create a desire for the status quo, to keep things the way they are. Now this transcends lots of different issues. It can transcend relationships or the way people save their money or spend their money. I'm afraid of loss. That's risk aversion. I'm afraid of what I don't know. And I really like what I do know. That makes me want to keep things the same. And that's uh, a danger for us. No. Yes? Um, I also like just another aspect of change is that improvement always means change. But all change doesn't mean improvement. 
you know, somebody said that. I think it was Elder Frizee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's true um, that that improvement always brings change, but not all change brings improvement, and that's really important for us as well. We don't need to just change things for the sake of change, but if we want to improve, there needs to be change. Right? Good, good point. Sorry. Yes. But since culture and environment is always morphing and changing, if you don't um, make that part of your mechanism for mm -hmm. process then you'll say, well, we'll stay with the status quo because at least we know the end result. But the end result, because things change, is not going to be there. That has changed. That's, that's very good. Good observation. That particularly because the society we're living in is changing so much, uh, we need to be continually thinking of new ways to do evangelism. You know, how do we interact with people? Uh, what do we do? Yes. In you know, back in the 70s or 80s when I was here, there were just all these little institutions springing up. Um, and, you know, you saw the demise of most of them. Is that, um, is that due largely to the fact that they, there are probably a lot of factors. But I wonder, like, in self-supporting work, are we able to make this change, the improved change? I wonder if maybe that was the cause of demise. Or so, question being, why have so many new ministries or ministries that have started imploded or died? And really, there would probably be lots of reasons to that. Some of them could be that the leader didn't think through how to transition away from him to a different leader. And so secession is often a reason for organizations collapsing. Certainly, the inability for an organization to adapt can contribute to their demise as well. So we need to be aware of our... our Personality, remember we said this earlier this morning, that Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful, wicked, above all things. And who can know it? This is part of our human condition. Part of our human condition, generally speaking, not everybody, but most of us, are risk adverse, we fear loss, and we like the familiar, which wants us to keep things the same, status quo. But if we're going to improve, we need to change. So it's important for us to realize that even if change is exciting, we should expect a sense of loss. So even when we're like, okay, I like this change, we need to realize that with the change will be some kind of sense of loss because we are losing something. We're losing the familiar. We're losing you know, the background. So the church that I just mentioned, Eastridge, when we started our church plant in South Bay, it was exciting, like, yeah, we're going to start this new church. That's exciting. We're a new church. We're starting a new church. But there's been a big sense of loss. And the loss has been, well, there's people from our congregation that aren't there any longer, people that we like, people that um, we're not going to see. But we should expect a sense of loss with any major change. That's just a heads up to ourselves. Also, even when you have competent people, expect ambiguity. What do we mean by that? Well. Ambiguity is this sense of I really don't know what's expected of me. I don't know where I fit, where, where how things are going to unfold. There's a sense of um, strangeness about the change. That happens when change occurs. People get married. It happens. So even with competent people involved in change, there's ambiguity. Now, if I have a sense of loss, and if I have ambiguity, that can create a lack of trust and self-preservation. 
So this is important. If I'm beginning to feel unsure of my role, things are too ambiguous for me. I know where I stood in the past, but now things have changed. I don't know where I stand. I'm feeling adrift at sea. I'm feeling a sense of loss. It's frequent that what will happen is that I'm going to stop trusting people and I'm going to start thinking, how can I preserve myself or preserve my territory? And I'm going to become resistant to the change and try to push out barriers to the change so that I can be self-preserving. It's important for us as leaders to think through this and to realize that this is a natural part of change. It, it takes place and we can help individuals work through it as long as we're comfortable enough to work through it as selves as well. Yes. So, you know, case in point, seeing that we're here go out and celebrate the 75 years, mm -hmm. I mean, over the last four years, I think there's been a significant amount of that, and with any, any change and whatever change management you can implement, you've always got the 80-20 principle, right? There's 20% of the people that you're never going to be able to bring along, bring along with you, um, and that's the reality. Uh, on most changes. Yeah, if it's only 20%, you're, you're doing good. Uh, let's look here a little bit about responses to change. It kind of builds off of what you just said about the 80-20 thought. First of all, you have some people that are resistors. They just are going to resist change, whatever it is. They're resistors. Then there's the compliant acceptors. They're kind of the middle of the road. And then you have change agents, those people that are interested in seeing change take place. The first and the last group, the resistors, total resistors, and your change agents really are in that, oh, it could be 5, 15, 20% group, where some part of the group are going to say, oh, we need to change. They're at the head of the curve. They can see the need for it. Their opposite end are going to be the resistors. They're threatened. They're silent saboteurs. They're thinking, how can I stop this change? What can I do? How can I dig in? How can I make it more difficult? Some, some of them are just openly confrontational. So these two are, you know, your resistors and your change agents are kind of like battling for the life of the organization. Then you have the middle group, the vast majority that are in the middle, that are kind of waiting to see how things are going to move. <laughs> and if the... Uh, change agents are able to create change and bring change into the organization. Okay, well, then they're going to go along with it. And still, you're always going to have these resistors that just are never going to like it, ever. And will always be wanting the old days. Um, so, Pastor Wilcholik, the old days, the good old days, right? So, um, Pastor Wilcholik in the back and I have had the unique opportunity of pastoring the same church in Connecticut many, many, many years ago, right? Did you pastor New London? You were in Norwich. Norwich and Willimantic. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, he didn't pass. We pastored two out of three. But one of the churches that I pastored in New England there was the New London Church. And there was a guy by the name of uh, Ray Halverson. Did you ever hear Ray Halverson? He was like this evangelist, you know? Um, and he had been a pastor of that church, no, like Ron, Ron, Halverson. Ron Halverson, sorry, Ron Halverson, yeah, sorry. 
He had been a pastor of that church before me, like way before me, much before me. And so when I got there, I was going to do an evangelistic series. And the whole conversation at the board was, well, when Ronnie was here, this is the way we did it. Well, when Ronnie was here, this is how it went. Well, when Ronnie was here, this is how many baptisms we had. It was like, okay, all you're stating is the way it was. That's neither an indication that it's good or bad. Now, for these people, it was good, and everything I was doing was wrong because I didn't want a tent, and I didn't want an air thing, and I, I was doing it differently. Um, some people are always going to be resistant to change. They're anchored there. You know, they're, let's say, 15 20%, 5 15 20% of your people. Okay, just recognize that. And then begin to think, how can I mobilize the vast majority of people to come along with the change? And again, it's important for us as we'll go through this to realize there are certain steps to leading change in an organization. Yes? And it seems like if you continue to move forward with a positive attitude like yourself, then a lot of the resistors will just kind of drop it and eventually accept. A lot of the resistors, you know, depending on the the strength of personality of the leader, they can become acquiescing. Some of them can even embrace the change, for sure. But believe me, there are people that no matter what happens and how long the change has been there, they're just waiting for you to trip up so they can take it back to the way it was. Of course, the way it was is not the way they remember it. You have to be very clear about that. Our memory of the way it was is very different than the way it was. Um, if you don't believe me, have a conversation with someone and ask them how it went in a year. Okay? So, or, they leave. Hmm? or they leave. Or they leave, which often is the great thing. Yeah. They're like, okay, this is, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't mean that in any ill will. I have left organizations or got off of boards because it was like, it's not worth fighting here. And so that happens. So why do people fight change? Um, so their concern, really, is that the old way is better. Now, think this through with me. If I believe the old way is better, and now I'm trying to, someone's trying to bring about change, what is that saying about the old way? It's not better. It's not better. Now there's an implied criticism. I was doing it this way, now you're telling me it's not the best way. And a leader, if they are, if their identity is not grounded in Christ, could very easily become sensitive. Oh, you're saying I was doing it wrong? Well, not really. I'm not really saying you're doing it wrong. I'm saying times have changed. Maybe you were doing it wrong. But change doesn't necessarily have to reflect on the leader, particularly if the leader's identity is in Christ and not in what they do. Another thing that comes about when we bring in change is it, it's a, seen as a criticism of what the previous leader has created. So um, give you a personal example. I was a director of Riverside Farm for many years. And um, one of my greatest delights is being a banana farmer. Okay? I love being a banana farmer. Bananas are wonderful. They're profitable. They taste good. They're easy to grow. They don't argue with you. They're just wonderful things to work with. And so at Riverside, we had planted bananas. As you drive in, it's a beautiful drive that comes in, and we have some center pivots out there. And on the 
right side as you're driving into the property, we had bananas when I left, and the bananas stayed there. And then a different leader came in and got rid of those bananas and planted papayas. I was, um, what's the right word? Well, there are lots of words, I suppose, that could describe it. You know, I was frustrated that he pulled out all those bananas because I know how good the bananas do. I was astounded that he would do that without asking my opinion, even though I hadn't been there for eight years uh, as director. Um, there's a host of things that, that went through my mind. And part of it was, what are you doing? I planted those bananas, and now you're tearing them out? They're going to make money. Of course, he had another idea how to make money. Um, at the end of the day, they got rid of the papayas and they planted bananas again, which I'm happy for. But the point there is I felt, in a sense, personally criticized or a criticism of the idea that I had put in there and the work that had gone in there. So that's a real subtle thing. So that's one reason we fight change. Another reason that we fight change is because it reflects on our competence, on our skill set. Whenever you're having a new change come in, it brings in new tasks. And maybe I'm not up to those tasks. Or maybe I wasn't doing the old tasks well enough. So it seems to be a criticism or we feel like a loss of competence. I don't really know how to handle this. And sometimes people are just unwilling to engage in that and they pull out when that change says, this is too much for me. I don't want to relearn how to do something. Another reason people fight change is because there is a loss of control. New tasks come in, new time frames, new processes, you know, uh, new demands. And so people who are losing their control fight change. And really, as a foundation, people fight change because they're losing their comfort level. You know, the familiar is very comfortable to us. We like the way doing things the way we do it. And so it's important for us to have change agents working with us. Just as a disclaimer, not all change is good, as we talked about earlier. Um, I work with somebody, Craig Harding, who's always thinking of new ideas, like all the time. And, you know, 90% of them just go out the window. But occasionally he's got a really good idea. And so, you know, we have this great relationship where he just kind of brings me ideas. Like, okay, 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 okay. But he's really good. You know, it's interesting to watch like the evangelism movement within the church. Mm -hmm. And truth be told, you know, we can bring better ways of working. But we've introduced puppetry and drama and all different kinds of outreaches, okay. all different kinds of changes. But we're finding more and more it's, you know, people are rehearsing the ministry of healing statement about Christ mingling. And right. So change in the ways of doing evangelism, not all change is an improvement, like you brought out earlier. So what are some obstacles to change? What are some obstacles? I'm going to kind of go through these and then uh, give some responses to them. Too much complacency. You know, there's no crisis. You know, uh, there's no sense of urgency, low performance. There's not very many demands. There's a lot of complacency in the organization. Another obstacle for change is when there is not enough support for change. In other words, your board or your leadership team, your administration team, isn't engaged in the change. It's very hard for one individual 
to bring about change. They need some kind of core group. Another obstacle to change, <coughs> pardon me, is a lack of vision. Where is this change taking us? Where are we going to with this change? Why should we be changing? Uh, another problem with change, another obstacle to change, is lack of communication. You know, um, lack of communication, that the leadership isn't sharing widely with the organization why the change should take place. Another inhibitor obstacle to change is just the very fact there are obstacles. I don't know how to navigate them. You know, there's too many mountains here. What do I do? Where do I get started? When I was director at Riverside Farm, we had the privilege of working with the World, um, World Food Organization, the branch of the UN. It was a drought there, <clears throat> and we were tasked Excuse me. We were tasked with feeding um, about 50,000 people in a, in a particular region. And we had to deliver food to them. We had several hundred metric tons of food that we had to deliver. And our, our target area went from where Riverside is along the Kafui River all the way down to the Zambezi River. It was a very wide, very big area, a lot of territory. And when I first began to look at it, it was like, oh, there's too many obstacles. How do you even begin to do this? Well, the first thing with any change or any obstacles is to break it into smaller pieces. So I got a map. We divided the map into little sections. We put teams in little sections. And we were able to do our work very successfully. But sometimes change is blocked because we can't think through what are the steps to go forward. Another reason that change in organization fails is because the change takes too much effort and time without seeing some kind of a return. To really bring about a substantive change in an organization takes time, takes effort, takes energy. And it's important to think through, OK, how can I get some short-term wins in this change cycle that we're trying to bring out? Um, <clears throat> change can, can take years. Don't celebrate too soon, celebrating too soon. Hey, we've done it. We've changed. But it's easy for regression to take place. Once the foot is off the gas pedal, and those individuals that don't like change, they just come right back to the front, and everything kind of drifts back to the way it was. The classic example of that in the political world is mission accomplished. Excellent illustration. Bush landed on the aircraft carrier, you know, and it looked like it was over. Right. But it was just beginning. Excellent example, George Bush's proclamation, mission accomplished, which it really wasn't. Yeah, excellent, good example. Um, and lastly, there's this problem of not connecting change to the local culture. Not connecting change to the local culture. One of the obstacles toward bringing change about is this comfortableness with the status quo. We become very comfortable with the status quo. So um, it's important for a leader to think through how there can be an awareness of a sense of urgency. Now, I have on the screen create a sense of urgency. Let me give you a couple of examples. There's an organization uh, that I work with that runs a wholesale business. And for several years, their wholesale business was doing very well. It was increasing financially. About 
three years ago, it started declining. And so in that board meeting, I raised a point. I said, okay, so your sales are down a little bit. Over the past five or six years, your sales are up a lot, but they're down this year. You need to keep a close eye on that, particularly as everything that's changing in the environment. You know, Wildwood has the country store, and you know, things change. You could buy a lot of the things here now that you, that you sell here. You could buy them at Publix or Walmart or you know, the, the way people buy health foods is changing in the United States. So I brought that, you know, to the board at that time. And then the next year was down a little bit more. And so it was down two years. And so then the second year, I was like, you know, you really need to pay attention to this. But because they had gone up so much over the, past, the previous years, they were still very comfortable. You know, there was a sense of comfortableness there really wasn't this sense of urgency. Well, they've been down, I think, three to four years in a row now. And so now there's this sense, hey, you know, we really need to be doing something. And I'm not trying to denigrate any leadership. I'm trying to just share that it's hard for us to change when things are somewhat comfortable. And, and it would be a wonderful opportunity to create a sense of urgency among the staff. We need to think of how we're going to do things differently. Because if this happens, we're going to be back to, you know, 2000, year 2000 levels. And so looking for areas of importance. We could think of a lifestyle center. A lifestyle center could be very comfortable having, oh, we've got 10 guests in a session. Well, but really, are we carrying our costs there? You know, if we could look at some of the details and make and aware to people what the real circumstances is, we can kind of help create this um, sense of urgency. We can either identify a potential crisis or a real crisis, one that's really in place. So, for example, in the store aspect, or we could talk about the country store here. I have, don't have any idea of how the country store sales are year after year. But here's a potential crisis. Pretty soon you're going to buy, able to buy anything you want in that store. You could buy, you know, Walmart, Publix, some local convenience store. We have a crisis. Wow, I've created one already, right? What are we going to do about the crisis? The sense of creating or highlighting a potential crisis or a real crisis is that it begins to motivate people away from their status quo. You realize something has to change. Uh, there's an interesting thing. It's, it's well known in the United States that most people, most, most people have not saved enough for retirement, both in the church and out of the church and in supporting ministries. And so one uh, very clever person came up with the idea of taking a picture of somebody and then aging that person. So you take a picture of somebody when they're 20 or 30 and then aging that person until they're 60, 70, or 80 and, uh, and then showing them what they look like so this is you in order to create this, man, I better do something about my retirement or I better do something about my health. You know, um, I have a friend that told me not too long ago, if he realized he was going to live as old as he is, he would have taken better care of his teeth, you know, just because we don't think about those things. So getting out of the status quo, one of the first steps is realizing that there is some kind of crisis. Now, you might be thinking, well, what if everything's okay? There is no crisis. Well, remember our little diagram. The crisis is everything may be okay right here, but we're headed toward death. 
And if we don't do something, we're just going to get older and decay and become less relevant and less relevant and, you know, finally go. All right? So that's, that's, an, that's important. People will think of a thousand ways to withhold their cooperation from change. You know, but that, that resistance to change comes out of complacency. How can I shake up that complacency? Again, at OCI, we did this accidentally. We didn't mean to do this. But um, when we were buying these properties, as I mentioned to you earlier, we made a mistake and we took some of our money and we put it as security against a loan for one of the properties. But we were unaware when we did this, this was my fault, we were unaware that we did this, that this money couldn't be accessed at all. So we thought we had like $500,000 on our balance sheet. We did, but the bank had four of it, and we couldn't touch it. And so all of a sudden, it was like, whoa, we made a mistake. We have a crisis. We need to address this. And it was interesting how well the board responded to that little crisis. It was not an intentional crisis by any means. Another thing a leader needs to do is try to build a coalition of both board members and staff members that are going to help with the change. You know, in every organization, there are influential people who can say something which can tip the scale one way or the other. If you can get those kind of people on, you know, to be part of your team for the change, it helps the change go much better. You have then a core of support which can create a enough uh, dynamics that you can begin to change, move the change forward. So selectively thinking, who do I need on my team to help support this? You know, what are the key individuals? Maybe it's my treasurer, maybe it's my head elder. Um, who is it do I need to, that could have in this coalition? With that, with gathering the support, the team needs enough authority to make the change team needs enough authority. So the board or the church board, whatever structure we're thinking about, needs to delegate that authority to the leadership to make that change. With this is the development of vision and strategy. And as we talked about earlier, I think that's really an important component of the board. But um, this should be the driving of the change. The crisis helps us realize, OK, something needs to go, or I'm going to lose my clientele. My organizations have become irrelevant. What do I need to do to bring this change about? And I have something right in front of me to shake me out of my lethargy, shake me out of my complacency, help me not to be so risk adverse because if I stay the way I am, I'm, I'm going to have certain problems. Sense of urgency. And I got my team together, but they need to be coalesced around the vision and strategy of the organization. Now, hopefully, if you had a healthy functioning board, that was already geared this way, change would be much easier because the leadership could come to the board and say, you know, this is our vision and strategy. This is where we are. We need to make some certain changes. And the board would be easier brought along. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Communication of the vision and the need of the change needs to be continuous. You know. Um, what's the mission of the organization? OCIs, we want to see in every country in the world a network of supporting ministries. Every country in the world, wherever they are, 
Yemen, Mongolia, wherever there's Seventh-day Adventists, there should be Seventh-day Adventist lay people engaged in ministry. That's our vision. That's what we want to see. We want to help encourage and strengthen and give lay people tools to do that. And because of that, we need to make change. Well, what kind of change? We need to be more transparent. We need to be more engaged in our board. We need to be financially sustainable so that uh, if a ministry does close down and the money comes to OCI, none of it stays with us. It all goes out to another ministry, and it becomes very transparent. How do we create these changes? It's based on our vision and strategy, but that needs to be continually communicated to others over and over again. Now, there's a danger. Uh, it's called the curse of knowledge, and that is thinking that you're going to understand something I say simply because it's very plain to me. You know, um, teachers have that problem, spouses have that problem, people, you know, communicate, and you think you understand, <clears throat> but my, my expertise isn't as broad as yours. And so, curse of knowledge. That's why it's always important to continue to communicate. Um, authority to act. This authority to act brings the ability to remove obstacles. Some of those obstacles can be people. Some of those obstacles can be situations or systems in the organization that need to change. But if the team has the authority to act, the authority to remove these obstacles, it helps facilitate the change. I mentioned earlier that one of the obstacles of change or inhibitors to change is we don't have enough short-term wins or we're not gaining enough traction. So for example, um, in OCI, as I mentioned, we we're trying to move towards sustainability where we could generate our income. If we made a lot of changes, if we demanded the board or we encouraged the board members to be donors to OCI and we made all these different changes, but we were not generating any income at all, after a year or two, it's going to be pretty discouraging. But we looked for short-term gains. Oh, first year, hey man, we generated $75,000 of our income. That's the first time OCI ever did that. So like, oh, okay, we're making progress. Now, as I said earlier, <clears throat> I think we'll have about three quarters of our budget, half to three quarters of our budget this year. So we're making gains, we're moving forward. We have properties to sell, it's taking a long time. Well, finally one sells, there's a short-term gain. We are putting field vice presidents out to different parts of the world field that can focus on ministries in their area. It's, OCI is very different than it was when Warren Wilson founded OCI, when you had, what, 10, 20 uh, members? And it was easy to sit on all the boards and visit all the institutions. With 124 members, it's impossible for me to do that, for me and Frank to do that. It's just, if, unless that was all we did all the time. So that's why we have field vice presidents, there to help the growth. And now the field vice presidents all of a sudden want us to fund them completely. You know, from non-existence, now we need to, to fund their salaries completely. I like that. But <clears throat> that's part of our vision. We're not there yet. But we're making incremental increases in their yearly travel budget. So these are short-term wins. These are steps that everybody can see, okay, the the expense of the change, the emotional expense of the change, is worth the effort. So that's, that's an important part there. <clears throat> now, 
Number seven, it's important for us to reinvigorate re, uh, the process to continue to keep it alive because it's very easy for regression to take place. And then lastly, notice this is last, it's important to root the change in the culture. Now some experts on change talk about changing the culture first. And I suppose that works in certain dynamics, but from my limited experience and certain things that I've read, it's really hard to change culture. It's not so hard to point out to people that they're in a crisis situation. You know, you have a shortfall in finances, your lifestyle center is about to close, you're, you don't have any staff, there's all sorts of crisis around us. And some people that write about leading change say, you know, don't start with the culture. Changing the culture is the last thing. But you need to ultimately root the change in the culture by letting people know this is part of who we are. You know, to be um, part of supporting, self-supporting work means to be self-supporting. Well, that's obvious. But let's root that change in the culture. Some people, you know, question, well, really, should we do this? Should we not do this? Hey, it's part of our identity. So ultimately, the change needs to be rooted in the culture. Okay, any questions? It's a lot of information quickly there. When you say the culture, you mean the culture of the institution? Yes, culture of the institution. Right, thank you. Um, so, in our very first presentation this morning, I said that good leaders know what to do, why it needs to be done, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear on the organization. What to do, why it needs to be done, and how to get your team together to do it. I broaden that by saying there's an ethical component, but this is important. And so with change, leaders need to establish the direction. Where are we going? Why are we going there? Bring the team together, get everybody in the right place, in, in the organization, and then motivate that team to, act, to action. Sometimes you'll find that people are, they're good team players, but maybe they need to be in a different place on the team. Or maybe they're good team players, but really their skill set isn't right for your organization at that time. And so it's very important for us to align the team. Let me say something about that. Um, at ASI last week, Craig and I did a session on working with difficult people. Um, I think the title was The Joyous Response to Annoyance. And um, I'm sure it's on Audioverse. And we talked about dealing with difficult people. And one of the things we brought out there was that when your team is not aligned, when, when significant people are pulling against you or not carrying their weight, you need to think carefully about what that person is doing on your team. You know, if you have an individual, if you have a scale of one to 10, and you have workers on that scale, people on your team, some of them are a 10, they're just fantastic. They excel at everything they do, they're self-motivated, they move forward, they're energetic, they're just great, they're a 10. Then you have people that are a one, what would that be like? They drag, more than they drag their feet. They don't even get out of bed in the morning, maybe. So yeah, so individuals that are more on this scale, this would be really positive, this would be negative.
then you have the vast majority of people, very few people are a 10, very few people are a 1. Then you got your vast majority of people that are, you know, kind of in this middle zone, somewhere between, let's say, 5 to 7, in this middle zone of 5 to 7. If you have a worker that you would rate somewhere between a 5 to 7, the best thing to do is try to move them up. If they're a 5, try to move them up to a 6. And if they get to a 6, move them up to a 7. And then if they get to a 7, maybe you can move them to an 8. You know, everybody has their limits, but try to move them up. But if you realize somebody is a 4, 3, 2, or 1, probably the best thing to do is let them go. And the reason for that is they are going to bring a negative impact on your entire team. Now, it's hard for us in supporting ministries, particularly, or in the church, to let people go. But really, it's for the health of the organization. Too often, we just try to find another spot for them. Now, I'm not saying don't work with somebody. But if you're talking with somebody, for sure, if you realize somebody's a one or a two, and you realize they need to go, the sooner you get them gone, the better for the organization. You know, the desire to try to be redemptive is good, but there's a line where that goodness becomes negative in a team and in an organization. And think of lots of organizations that, well, I'm going to keep working with these people. I'll keep them. We're long-suffering. And meanwhile, everybody that works with them, it becomes discouraged. And then they start leaving. And then ultimately, you have to let that person go anyway. And then it would have been better just to make that change earlier. Yes, Stephen, you know, many times, especially in, in our supporting work, we, we view um, letting staff go as a salvational issue, mm -hmm. and it's important to keep the person on the campus for their salvation's sake. And we, we are compassionate, we want to try and help people and all the rest. But we need to recognize salvation is only through Christ. Amen. And it's not an organizational issue. And I've had people come to me afterwards who have been very upset with me and with the committee because they've been asked to leave a year later and come and say that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Okay. You know, so there's a balance in this thing. We we need to try and encourage people to come up higher. But there's a there's a stage where, you know, it's not the goal of the organization to uh, carry individuals that are not contributing in a significant uh, way to the organization. So you bring a lot of good points out there. Uh, there is unfortunately a dynamic in supporting ministries, and I would say probably even in the church, the denominational structure where it's very hard for us to let people go and, and we kind of cross this mental line that if they go, how's that going to impact their salvation? Now, I need to let them go in an appropriate way. I need to be kind and I need to be clear with them. But whether somebody's at Wildwood or not, uh, working at Wildwood or not, or working at OCI or working for the denomination or not, is not the basis of their salvation. That needs to be, of course, clearly between them and Christ. Environment. Yes. But... Sometimes people need help to spread their wings, as it were, get kicked out of the nest in order to fly. That's right. That's right. So Some can be taught to fly within the organization. Others need to be, you know, transported out um, to enable them to... 
And our, our tendency is to, I would suggest that our tendency is to work too long with people and that once I as a leader sense this person needs to go, I need to begin every step to move them on. Now, that doesn't mean I fire them the next day, but I begin thinking, okay, what is the best way to transition this person out? Because the longer I keep them, when, because if I realize it, everybody else realizes it too. I'm probably going to be the last person to realize it. And when other people realize <clears throat> this person should go and why are they kept on here, it just erodes confidence in the leadership. It creates tension in the organization. And then you end up losing other people as well. Yes? Isn't the posture, the best posture we can take, that of um, casting a vision for um, movement, okay? Movement being, here is 100 people, 20 people, whatever, in, within a, a confines of, let's say, an institution, okay? If they become institutionalized, if that's their mindset, and this is a safe haven, then that's what they want to do because that's what they understood is the goal. But if the goal is to move on, yeah. then when someone is asked to move on for their own good, for the good of the organization, or just to fulfill the mission of, this, of the organization itself, then it's expected. And so my posture is, even if I'm in leadership, even if I'm the leader, I'm looking to train the next leader so that I can go on to whatever that is next for me too. Mm -hmm. So then there's not this situation of, oh, well, I'm, I'm losing control. No, I already designed that into the plan, etc. Yeah, good. You know, again, if we're thinking the end aim is to live and work in a safe environment, i.e. Wildwood, Riverside, whatever it is, then, yeah, I don't ever want to leave here. But if the end game is, or my vision is, we're an expansive work, and the work needs to expand, and we expect people to be brought out and move, that's important. It's a two-edged sword, though, because you can't maintain consistency with a continual change. You yes, of course. Long-term committed people, right. you know, in leadership now, I'm not talking about entrenched leadership, but, you know, they, there needs to be, you know, a long-term aspect to this. Right here, we, our average is two and a half years for a worker. Huh. But there are still uh, a number of workers that stay here and, you know, you, you need that it needs your core people who have the whole vision and sustainability, stability of the organization. Sure. Okay. Um, well, there's a lot more to talk about change. We only have two minutes left. So rather than launch into a new top, new aspect of change, I think I'll stop right there. Give you out two minutes early. Okay. So I encourage you to keep studying about leadership, realized that, as we said earlier this morning, um, one of the primary foundations of leadership is self-awareness, knowledge of self. That is what the true witness tells us is one of our greatest needs. You know not your condition. And the way God brings us an awareness of that is through the providences and difficulties, trials of life. So there are tests that God brings to us to help us become more self-aware learn more of him. Okay, well, let's have a word of prayer together. Gracious Father, thank you for the opportunity to learn from you. Pray that you would give us something practical we could have taken away from our time today. Um, bless Wildwood Lord, 75 years. May you continue to strengthen this organization. May it continue to do the work you've given it to do 
until Jesus comes. And we long for that day in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.